Listener supported. WNYC Studios. On June 3rd, as New York City's streets filled up with protesters following the death of George Floyd, a beloved New York City tradition was taking place. But this time, at home. Over two dozen people turned on their computers and sat down to read Shakespeare. Richard II by William Shakespeare. Episode 1. Act 1, Scene 1. It felt tense. It was a mix of incredible excitement and also... um, Emotionally raw. Should we be engaging in, in something that some dead old white guy wrote 400 years ago? I actually love Richard II. For me, it's it's Shakespeare at his best. The play in one word is about revolution. I'm Vincent Cunningham, staff writer at The New Yorker, and this is Free Shakespeare on the Radio from WNYC in collaboration with the Public Theater. I first encountered Shakespeare in the summer before my eighth grade year, and the play was Midsummer Night's Dream. I was a kid who had grown up in a church that always used the King James Bible. And I was also a kid that grew up thinking that funny things were always more important than serious things. So a comedy in the language that I knew from church was very appealing to me. So I came to Shakespeare with a great enthusiasm and love. Today, I'm a writer and a theater critic, and I'm still trying to pull something like that off. Marrying language, which is always so specific to time and place and situation, and hooking that on to ideas which, in some ways, are timeless. Over the next four nights, we'll listen to Richard II together, performed by some of the best Shakespearean actors in the country. And we're also going to talk about why, with so much else going on, this play is worth listening to right now. In the summer of 2020, I can't imagine a play that hits harder or more deserves to be heard and listened to quite carefully. We've broken the play into four parts. Before each part, we'll talk to you about what you need to know going into that night's episode. If you want to read Richard II as you listen to it, you can download a copy of the script at wnyc.org slash Shakespeare. After the play, we'll talk with some of the actors to hear what it was like to record this play this summer. Beautiful. So we'll do, we'll do as we've been doing. We'll read through the scene and then I'll give you some thoughts and then we'll read it again. So whenever you're ready, take it. Sahim Ali was going to direct Richard II live on an outdoor stage as part of Shakespeare in the Park. But with so much of the country shut down because of the pandemic, he and the cast turned it into a radio play. Yeah, we will have a second take. We'll have a second take. It's a complicated play, but every time I mention Richard II, it's like the diehards who are like, that is my favorite Shakespeare play. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just the diehards. During Shakespeare's lifetime, Richard II was one of his most popular plays. But now it's one of his least performed works. If I'm working on Shakespeare, I'm always making it for the people who potentially have never seen Shakespeare before. Right. I'm always thinking about that. Richard II is about a society going through a shocking transition of power. And in a summer of unprecedented social and political change, the play's themes feel especially resonant. Oh, the word universal is so loaded, but like there's just something to the fact that this guy's plays are being done all over the world in multiple languages, in multiple cultures. It has the power to transcend. It's not about this British guy. It's uh-huh. not owned by them or him, you know? 
the play allows us to grieve the loss of something, even if we think it's the right thing to get rid of. This is Ayanna Thompson. She and James Shapiro will be our guides to the play. Ayanna and Jim are two of the country's top Shakespeare scholars. These plays have always existed in particular historical and political moments. Mm. Richard II is the best example of that. I mean, if I told you we were rehearsing a play about a murder that nobody wants to take responsibility for, that nobody really wants to speak about, you could almost laugh. We are precisely at a moment where we're thinking about our structures. Like, people are saying, defund the police, right? Like, okay, so if we actually do that, we need to let ourselves grieve what that is. Mm. What are we giving up? And I think the play is like, you know, I think the play is brilliant in the way that it makes you, makes you have an emotional reaction to that action, even when you know it's right. Ayana teaches and writes about the intersection of Shakespeare and race at Arizona State University. I grew up pretty working class uh, and did not go to a lot of theater, but my mother was a a weird Shakespeare fan. (laughs) Jim teaches at Columbia and advises the public theater. They both first encountered Shakespeare the way a lot of us did, as teenagers with Romeo and Juliet. In ninth grade in Midwood High School, I didn't get Romeo and Juliet. I didn't even get the dirty bits everybody else in the room seemed to get. (laughs) And I was made to feel stupid about Shakespeare. I guess we could start from the beginning. And I'd just love to ask you, when did your love of engagement with Um, the theater began? I was 13 at the time, and I had zero interest. (laughs) Zero. (laughs) And I thought this was like the least cool thing you could do. But we saw a production of Romeo and Juliet that was all in leather costumes. Wow. And it was so sexy and so today and so right on that my first like live Shakespeare experience made it feel like it was about my life. And... I think that's something that kind of stuck with me. So after that, was Shakespeare an interest? Was that like immediate? You're like, I'm into this? No, no, no. I started off as an investment banker on Wall Street. I was the first black female analyst at Lehman Brothers. Wow. And once I got there, I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) So Richard II... What does this play mean to you? And, and, and how has it been to work on, on this one? I teach this play in the middle of a semester every fall. And it's the one play that kids walk in defeated by because they don't know what's going on when the play begins and they're constantly playing catch up. I often tell my students, it's okay, you're going to have the Shakespeare effect which is the first 10 minutes are going to feel like you landed on a different planet and you're not really sure you want to be on that planet. (laughs) And then suddenly something happens and your brain, it's like, you know, your translation machine kicks in and all of a sudden you understand the words, you understand the emotions, you understand the plot, the characters, everything. You don't need to understand British history. That's director Sahim Ali. You don't need to understand like who was the king before and like who's related to who, like those kind of details, you know, you can look them up on Wikipedia if you need to, but they're not gonna be the thing that's gonna make you go on the, on the journey. Be patient. 
It's okay that you're going to feel uncomfortable. And then you get the joy and the challenge of what the play is actually about. At the center of the play is a struggle to upend an old political system. Here's Jim again. And there's a tension in the play between these two aristocratic men squaring off and what's really at stake, which is a battle over control, over power, and ultimately over who gets the throne. And I think it may be a slightly uncomfortable narrative for Americans because some of it hinges on this essential identity of the divine right of kings. This is, of course, um, what we precisely wanted to throw off when we (laughs) had the Declaration of Independence, that we don't believe in the divine right of kings, that we believe in men primarily ruling, hopefully women at some point. Hmm. Okay. Hi, Sophia. Okay. Thank you. And I'm just going to say one thing before we hand it over to Matt. This is the third time for some of you, but just to check that we're on the June 12th draft, that you have any devices turned off, cell phones that might ring, landlines that, you know, anything like that, and that your notifications are off on your computers. Great. Take it away, Andre. Old John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster. Hast thou, according to thy oath and ban, brought hither Henry Bolingbroke, thy son? Okay, let's start at the beginning. In Act 1, Scene 1, where are we and what's happening? So, Act 1, Scene 1, we're in Richard's throne room. A man has been murdered. Gloucester, uncle to Richard II. The play almost begins as a whodunit. Who is responsible for Gloucester's death? And nobody will take responsibility for that. You start off feeling that Richard is very weak, and students and readers, often audience members, feel kind of antipathy for him. It's a man who's learning how to become a full human being. You know, he's learning how to sit with his own uh, vulnerability. Our King Richard, actor Andre Holland. Yeah, but there's there's something to it. I'll have to listen back to it and see. But if you feel it, if you feel like it's... And I think you're right. You'll hear from Andre a lot over the next four because days. Because it is for radio, obviously. Like. And he is trying to figure out um, what it means to be a man, right? What it means to be a leader. And he makes mistakes left and right. Here is a man who, for better or for worse, was thrust into a circumstance, used the best tools that he had to deal with the world that he was responsible for, and failed to realize until it was too late um, just the repercussions of his actions or lack of action. And Richard's main rival is his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke. Sahim cast a woman in the role of Bolingbroke. It was part of a really intentional casting process that thought a lot about who would play what role and what they would bring to it. Sahim said that once he knew he had Andre as king, a king, spoiler alert, who will eventually fall, he realized that the only person he wanted to see take power from a black man was a black woman. I'm freeing my natural voice. Like, it's just, it's free. Meet Miriam A. Hyman. Yes, I am rolling. Bolingbroke in our play. Act one, scene one. He's been stripped of everything. He was just speaking up. He was just speaking the truth and wanting to ask questions in terms of, you know, how Gloucester was murdered. This whole thing turns into being banished and having everything taken away from me and my father dying. And I mean, it just, it just really gets out of control. This is a play about two men in a battle over control, over power. 
and ultimately over who gets to wear the crown. So now grab some snacks, maybe a drink, and find a comfortable place to sit back and listen. Here's episode one of Richard II. The actors and the public theater dedicate this production to the Black Lives Matter movement. start of a murder mystery. King Richard's uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, has just been killed. Who killed him? Nobody knows. The air is filled with tension and antagonism. There's a threat of violence and revenge for his death. At this moment, King Richard sits in his throne room with his other uncle, John of Gaunt. A dispute has broken out that they must deal with. Old John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster, hast thou, according to thy oath and band, brought hither Henry Bolingbroke, thy son, here to make good the boisterous accusation, which then our leisure would not let us hear, against the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Mowbray? I have, my liege. Tell me, moreover, hast thou sounded him if he accused the duke on ancient malice, or worthily, as a good subject should, on some known ground of treachery in him? As near as I could sift him on that argument, on some apparent danger seen in him, aimed at your highness, no inveterate malice. Then call them to our presence. Ourselves will hear the accuser and the accused freely speak. High-stomached are they both, and full of ire. Many years of happy days befall my gracious sovereign, my most loving liege. Each day still better others' happiness until the heavens, envying Earth's good hap, add an immortal title to your crown. We thank you both, yet one but flatters us. As well appeareth by the cause you come, namely to accuse each other of high treason. My cousin Bolingbroke, what sayst thou against the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Mowbray? First, heaven be the record to my speech. In the devotion of a subject's love, tendering the precious safety of my prince, and free from other misbegotten hate, come I appellant to this princely presence. Now, Thomas Mowbray, do I turn to thee, and mark my greeting well. For what I speak, my body shall make good upon this earth, or my divine soul answer it in heaven. 
Thou art a traitor and a miscreant. Too good to be so and too bad to live. With a foul traitor's name, stuff I thy throat and wish, so please, my sovereign, ere I move, what my tongue speaks, my right-drawn sword may prove. Thomas of Norfolk, what sayst thou to this? Let not my cold words here accuse my zeal. Tis not the bitter clamor of two eager tongues can arbitrate this cause betwixt us twain. The blood is hot that must be cooled for this. First, the fair reverence of your highness curbs me from giving reins and spurs to my free speech, which else would post until it had returned these terms of treason doubled down his throat. Now, setting aside his high blood's royalty and let him be no kinsman to my liege, I do defy him and I spit at him. (sighs) Call him a slanderous coward and a villain, which to maintain, I would allow him odds and meet him were I tied to run afoot even to the frozen ridges of the Alps. (laughs) Pale, trembling cow. Bolingbroke has thrown down his glove. There. I throw my gauge, disclaiming here the kindred of the king, and lay aside my high blood's royalty, which fear, not reverence, makes thee to accept. If guilty dread have left thee so much strength as to take up mine honor's pawn, then stoop. I take it up. The fight is on. This can only end in combat. And by the royal sword I swear, with gently laid my knighthood on my shoulder, I'll answer thee in any fair degree or chivalrous design of knightly trial. What doth our cousin lay to Mowbray's charge? It must be great that can inherit us so much as a thought of ill in him. Mm-hmm. That Mowbray hath received eight thousand nobles in name of lendings for your highness soldiers. The which... He hath detained for lewd employment, like a false traitor and injurious villain. Further, I say, and further will maintain upon his bad life to make all this good. That he did plot the Duke of Gloucester's death. Suggest his soon-believing adversaries, and consequently, like a traitor coward, sluiced out his innocent soul through streams of blood. Which blood, like sacrificing Abel's cries, even from the tongueless caverns of the earth to me for justice and rough chastisement? How high a pitch his resolution soars. <laughs> Let my sovereign turn away his face and bid his ears a little while be deaf, till I have told this slander of his blood how God and good men hate so foul a liar. He is our subject, Mowbray, so art thou, free speech and fearless I to thee allow. Hmm. Then, Bolingbroke, as low as to thy heart, through the false passage of thy throat, thou liest. Three parts of that receipt I had for Calais, dispersed I duly to his highness soldiers. The other part reserved I by consent, for that my sovereign liege was in my debt upon remainder of a dear account, since last I went to France to fetch his queen. Now swallow down that lie. For Gloucester's death, I slew him not, but... To my own disgrace, neglected my sworn duty in that case. As for the rest charged, it issues from the rancor of a villain, a recreant and most degenerate traitor, which in myself I boldly will defend and interchangeably hurl down my gauge upon this overweening traitor's foot. 
in haste whereof most heartily I pray your highness to assign our trial day. Wrath kindled gentlemen, be ruled by me. Let's purge this collar without letting blood. Forget, forgive, conclude, and be agreed, good uncle. Let this end where it begun. We'll calm the Duke of Norfolk, you, your son. Do be a make peace shall become my age. Throw down, my son, the Duke of Norfolk's gauge. And Mowbray, throw down his. When, Harry, when? Obedience bids I should not bid again. Mowbray, throw down, we bid, there is no boot. Myself I throw, dread sovereign, at thy foot. My life thou shalt command, but not my shame. I am disgraced, impeached and baffled here, pierced to the soul with slander's venom spear. Rage must be withstood. Give me his gauge. Lions make leopards tame. Yea, but not change his spots. I take but my shame, and I resign my gauge. My dear, dear lord, the purest treasure mortal times afford is spotless reputation. Mine honor is my life. Both grow in one, take honor from me, and my life is done. We were not born to sue, but to command. Which says we cannot do to make you friends. Be ready, as your lives shall answer it. At Coventry, upon St. Lambert's Day. There shall your swords and lances arbitrate the swelling difference of your settled hate. with the Duchess of Gloucester. She's mourning her husband's death and begs John of Gaunt to take action. Alas, the part I had in Gloucester's blood doth more solicit me than your exclaims to stir against the butchers of his life. Finds brotherhood in thee no sharper spur? Hath love in thy old blood no living fire? Edward, seven sons, whereof thyself art one, were as seven vials of his sacred blood. Some of those seven are dried by nature's course, some of those branches by the destinies cut. But Thomas, my dear Lord, my life, my Gloucester, one flourishing branch of his most sacred root is hacked down, and his summer leaves all faded by envy's hand and murder's bloody axe. Oh, God, his blood was thine. In suffering thus thy brother to be slaughtered, thou showst the naked pathway to thy life, teaching stern murder how to butcher thee. What shall I say? To safeguard thine own life? The best way is to venge my Gloucester's death. God's is the quarrel. For God's substitute, his deputy, anointed in his sight, hath caused his death. The which, if wrongfully, let heaven revenge, for I may never lift an angry arm against his minister. Where then, alas, may I complain myself? To God, the widow's champion and defense. Well, then I will. Farewell, old God. Thou goest to Coventry, 
there to behold our nephew Bolingbroke and Mowbray fight. Oh, sit my husband's wrongs on Bolingbroke's spear that it may enter butcher Mowbray's breast. Farewell, old God. Thy sometime brother's wife with her companion grief must end her life. Sister, farewell. I must to Coventry. As much good stay with thee as go with me. I take my leave before I have begun, for sorrow ends not when it seemeth done. Commend me to thy brother York. Lo, this is all. Nay, yet depart not so. Though this be all, do not so quickly go. I shall remember more. Bid him... Ah, what? With all good speed at Pleshy visit me. Desolate. Desolate will I hence and die. The last leave of thee takes my weeping eye. You're listening to Free Shakespeare on the Radio from WNYC in collaboration with the Public Theater. Richard II will be back in a moment. I'm Vincent Cunningham. You're listening to Free Shakespeare on the Radio from WNYC in collaboration with the Public Theater. We return now to Richard II. We're in a packed stadium now. Richard has sanctioned a trial by combat between Bolingbroke and Mowbray to determine who's telling the truth. God is expected to intervene and save the life of the innocent. The guilty will die. Marshal, demand of yonder champion the cause of his arrival here in arms. Ask him his name and orderly proceed to swear him in the justice of his cause. In God's name and the King's, say who thou art and why thou comest thus knightly clad in arms. Against what man thou comest and what thy quarrel. My name is Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, who hither come engaged by my oath, which God defend and knight should violate, both to defend my loyalty and truth to God, my King, and my succeeding issue against Henry Bolingbroke that accuses me, and by the grace of God and this mine arm, to prove him in defending of myself a traitor to my God, my King, and me. Marshal, ask yonder knight in arms both who he is and why he cometh hither, and formally, According to our law, depose him in the justice of his cause. What is thy name? Against whom comest thou? And what's thy quarrel? Henry Bolingbroke, Duke of Hereford, am I, who ready here do stand in arms to prove by God's grace and my body's valor, enlist on Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, that he is a traitor? and dangerous to God of heaven, King Richard, and to me. 
and as I truly fight, defend me, heaven. Lord Marshal, let me kiss my sovereign's hand and bow my knee before his majesty. The appellate in all duty greets your highness and craves to kiss your hand and take his leave. We will descend and fold him in our arms. My cousin Bolingbroke, as thy cause is right, so be thy fortune in this royal fight. Farewell, my blood, which if today thou shed, lament we may, but not revenge thee dead. As confident as is the falcon's flight against a bird, do I with Mowbray fight. My loving lord, I take my leave of you. Father! The earthly author of my blood, whose youthful spirit in me regenerate, dealt with a twofold vigor, lift me up to reach at victory above my head. God, in thy good cause, make thee prosperous. Be swift like lightning in the execution, and let thy blows doubly redoubled fall like amazing thunder on the cask of thy adverse pernicious enemy. Mine innocence and St. George to thrive. Order the trial, Marshal, and begin. Sound trumpets! And set forward, combatants! Stay! The king hath thrown his warder down! King Richard has jumped to his feet, interrupting the fight before it has begun. Let them lay by their helmets and their arms, and both return back to their chairs again. This is not typically how these events go. Richard is conferring with his council. Draw near and list what with our council we have done. For that our kingdom's earth should not be soiled with that dear blood which it hath fostered. And for we think the eagle-winged pride of sky-aspiring and ambitious thoughts with rival-hating envy set on you to wake our peace and make us wade even in our kindred's blood. Therefore, we banish you our territories. You, Cousin Bolingbroke, on pain of life, till twice five summers have enriched our fields, shall not regret our fair dominions, but tread the stranger paths of banishment. Your will be done. This must my comfort be. That sun that warms you here shall shine on me, and those his golden beams to you here lent shall point on me and gild my banishment. Mowbray, for thee remains a heavier doom, which I with some unwillingness pronounce. The sly, slow hours shall not determinate the dateless limit of thy dear exile. The hopeless word of... Never to return, breathe I against thee upon pain of life. <laughs> A heavy sentence, my most sovereign liege, and all unlooked for from your highness' mouth. The language I have learnt these forty years 
my native English now I must forego? And now my tongue's use is to me no more than an unstringed viol or harp. Within my mouth you have enjailed my tongue, doubly portcullised with my teeth and lips, and dull, unfeeling, barren ignorance is made my jailer to attend on me. I am too old to fall upon a nurse, too far in years to be a pupil now. What is thy sentence then but speechless death, which robs my tongue from breathing native breath? It boots thee not to be so passionate. After our sentence, plaining comes too late. Then thus I turn me from my country's light, to dwell in solemn shades of endless night. Return again, and take an oath with thee. Lay on our royal sword your banished hands. Swear by the duty that you owe to God. You never shall, so help you truth and God, embrace each other's love in banishment. Nor never look upon each other's face. Nor never write, regret, or reconcile this lowering tempest of your home-bred hate. Nor never by advised purpose meet to plot, contrive, or complot any ill against us, our state, our subjects, and our land. I swear. And I to keep all this. Mowbray. By this time, had the king permitted us, one of our souls had wandered in the air, banished this frail sepulcher of our flesh, as now our flesh is banished from this land. Confess thy treasons ere thou fly the realm. No, Bolingbroke. If ever I were traitor, my name be blotted from the book of life, and I from heaven banished as from hence. But what thou art, God, thou and I do know. And all too soon, I fear the king shall rue. Farewell, my liege. Now no way can I stray, save back to England. All the world's my way. My uncle Gaunt. Even in the glasses of thine eyes, I see thy grieved heart. Thy sad aspect hath from the number of his banished years plucked four away. Six frozen winters spent return with welcome home from banishment. How long a time lies in one little word? Four lagging winters and four wanton springs end in a word. Such is the breath of kings. I thank my liege that in regard of me he shortens four years of my son's exile. But little vantage shall I reap thereby, for ere the six years that he hath to spend can change their moons and bring their times about, my oil-dried lamp and time-be-wasted light shall be extinct with age and endless night. Why, uncle, thou hast many years to live. But not a minute, king, that thou canst give. Shorten my days thou canst with sullen sorrow, and pluck nights from me, but not lend a morrow. Cousin, farewell, and uncle, bid him so. Six years we banish him, and he shall go. What is six winters? They are quickly gone. To men in joy. But grief makes one hour ten. Call it a travel that thou takes for pleasure. My heart will sigh when I miscall it so, which finds it an enforced pilgrimage. The sullen passage of thy weary steps esteem as foil whereon thou art to set the precious jewel of thy home return. Nay, 
Rather, every tedious stride I make will but remember me what a deal of world I wander from the jewels that I love. Teach thy necessity to reason thus. There is no virtue like necessity. Think not the king did banish thee, but thou the king. Go, say I sent thee forth to purchase honor, and not the king exiled thee. Come, come, my son, I'll bring thee on thy way. Had I thy youth and cause, I would not stay. With Bolingbroke banished, and the fallout of Gloucester's death behind him, King Richard is back in court having dinner with his close friends Bushy, Baggett, and Green. <laughs> ah, we did observe. Ah, Cousin O'Merle, how far brought you High Bolingbroke on his way? <laughs> but to the next highway, and there I left him. And save, what store of parting tears were shed? <laughs> Faith, none for me. Oh, except... The northeast wind, which then blew bitterly against our faces, awaked the sleeping room, and so by chance did grace our hollow parting with a tear. <laughs> <laughs> what, what said our cousin when you parted with him? F- f- farewell. <laughs> and, and for my heart disdained that my tongue should so profane the word that taught me craft to counterfeit oppression of such grief that words seemed buried in my sorrow's grave. <laughs> he is our cousin, cousin. But tis doubt when time shall call him home from banishment whether our kinsmen come to see his friends. Ourself and Bushy, Baggett here and Green, observed his courtship to the common people. Mm. How he did seem to dive into their hearts with humble and familiar courtesy. Mm. What reverence he did throw away on slaves, wooing poor craftsmen with the craft of smiles and patient underbearing of his fortune, as t'were to banish their effects with him. Off goes his bonnet to an oyster wench. Ugh. A brace of draymen bid God speed him well and had the tribute of his supple knee. With thanks, my countrymen, my loving friends, <laughs> as were our England in reversion his, and he on subjects next degree in hope. Well, he is gone, and with him go these thoughts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, for the rebels which stand out in Ireland, expedient manage must be made, my liege. Ere further leisure, yield them further means for their advantage and your highness' loss. Mm. <sighs> We will ourself in person to this war, and for our coffers with too great a court and liberal largesse are grown somewhat light, we are enforced to rent our royal realm, the revenue whereof shall furnish us for our affairs in hand, if that come short. Our substitutes at home shall have blank contracts, whereto when they shall know what men are rich, they shall subscribe them for large sums of gold and send them after to supply our wants. For we will make for Ireland presently. Ah. My liege. Bushy, what news? Old John of Gaunt is grievous sick, my lord, suddenly taken and hath sent post-haste to entreat your majesty to visit him. Where lies he? At Ely House. 
now put it God in the physician's mind to help him to his grave immediately. (laughs) (laughs) The lining of his coffers shall make coats to deck our soldiers for these Irish wars. Come, gentlemen, let's all go visit him. Pray God we may make haste and come too late. (laughs) Amen. Richard's uncle, John of Gaunt, is dying. He's heartsick at the banishment of his son, Bolingbroke. He waits to talk to King Richard one final time. His brother, York, is with him. Will the king come, that I may breathe my last in wholesome counsel to his unstayed youth? Vex not yourself, nor strive not with your breath. For all in vain comes counsel to his ear. Oh, but they say the tongues of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. (laughs) Though Richard, my life's counsel, would not hear, my death's sad tale may yet undeaf his ear. No, it is stopped with other flattering sounds. As praises of whose taste the wise are fond, report of fashions in proud Italy, Where doth the world thrust forth a vanity that is not quickly buzzed into his ears? Then all too late comes counsel to be heard. Direct not him whose way himself will choose, tis breath thou lackst, and that breath wilt thou lose. Methinks I am a prophet new inspired, and thus expiring do foretell of him. His rash, fierce blaze of riot cannot last. This royal throne of kings, this sceptred isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, this nurse, this teeming womb of royal kings, feared by their breed and famous by their birth, this land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land... Dear for her reputation through the world is now leased out. I die pronouncing it like to a tenement or a pelting farm. England bound in with the triumphant sea, whose rocky shore beats back the envious siege of watery Neptune, is now bound in with shame, with inky blots and rotten parchment bonds. That England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself. (laughs) Would the scandal vanish with my life? How happy then were my ensuing death. The king is come. 
deal mildly with his youth, for young hot colts being reigned do rage the more. That was episode one of Richard II. We'll pick back up tomorrow night exactly where we left off, with Gaunt on his deathbed, hoping for a chance to have a final, urgent conversation with King Richard. But before we go, a conversation with some of the actors in our production. We talked about what it was like to make this play this summer, and look at how Richard II fits into decades of theatrical history. And now what I just want everybody to do is introduce yourselves, say your name, your role, and that... To make a radio play in the middle of a pandemic, actors gathered over Zoom and recorded themselves at home. Any other questions? When should we turn on our recorders? That was going to be the next thing. If everybody can... They'd been planning to spend their summer working under the stars and sometimes the rain at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. These are actors who were used to dealing with the raccoons backstage, or the occasional pause in the action when lightning strikes or a helicopter goes overhead. Act four, scene one. Actors like Biko Eisenmartin, Biko Eisenmartin, who plays Fitzwater, Fitz to the water. a Bolingbroke supporter. Shakespeare in the Park, I think, is a place that every actor who enjoys the classics wants to be. To me, it's up there with the globe and kind of these legendary places where theater is done. To me, it is the best Shakespeare in America, and part of what makes it the best Shakespeare is that it's free. Michael Bradley Cohen plays Bushy, one of Richard II's and cohorts. Starting with the scene with... Uh, the Delacorte's like a second home to him. When I saw the full cast list, I immediately combed through and found all the people who I'd worked with before Shakespeare in the Park at the Delacorte. It's like coming back to Shakespeare camp with all your best Shakespeare friends. That feeling of camaraderie was a dream of Joseph Papp, who was the founder of the New York Shakespeare Festival, which became the public theater. The organization has been putting on free Shakespeare productions in Central Park for more than 60 years now. On June 18th, 1962, Papp spoke in Central Park at the dedication of the Delacorte Theater. The existence of this theater is a uh, tribute to democracy. The fact that it is free is key to the understanding of the significance of the festival. He believed in democracy in a radical way. Did you know Joe Papp? We met. Um, my last audition as an actor was for Joe. Walked out of the room and said, I am never auditioning again. <laughs> it was the most humiliating experience. So Oscar Eustace is the artistic director of the public theater today. You know, I think in some ways it's good that I didn't know Joe personally, because what I can do is take the essence of what Joe stood for and make that as bright and shiny as possible. By keeping it free... I feel we have supported and defended the very core of the the democratic philosophy, which is the greatest good for the greatest number. That's such a such a powerful speech, a powerful man. Sean Carvajal plays Surrey and the Gardener's Man in Richard II. When I talked to him, he told me he'd just been reading Pap's autobiography. Joseph Pap was someone who had vision. I mean, if it wasn't for him, I I wouldn't see myself as an actor. I mean, I think that's how deep that runs. This idea that 
not just Shakespeare, but that the theater belongs to the people. Sean grew up in Washington Heights. He's first generation from the Dominican Republic. And in fifth grade, his teacher made him memorize sonnets. Um, I hated it. Um, it was just something that was so foreign to me. But Sean stuck with Shakespeare. He did Richard II in college and was on Broadway last year with Glenda Jackson in King Lear. He recorded this play from his bedroom, which, like most New York City apartments, sometimes got a little noisy during recording sessions. Yeah, I have a comforter. You want me to put it over my head? Sean and Stephen McKinley Henderson have known each other for a long time, but this was a production like neither of them had ever done before. Do you agree, Mr. Henderson? He's the greatest producer of our time. Oh, yeah, you know, so, you, the perspective that you... From what I've heard, it's a, it's a very interesting time for all of you. You're planning to do this show, and then there's this amazing thing going on outside of all the apartments that you're in planning to um, put this on. And I guess there, there, there must have been some worry or some trepidation about, okay, what does it mean to be doing this at this time? I'd love to just hear you talk about what that moment was like and how the company came together to decide... Um, Here's how we're going to move forward. Um, I think for me personally, I stepped into rehearsals uncertain as to whether I could participate in this Richard II production um, just because at the time it didn't make sense. You know, is the work still relevant? Is it still important? Knowing that our country was literally burning down. Sean and I go back, personally go back, and... um I felt, I knew what was in Sean's heart. I felt that the notion of, is this relevant, you know? Stephen McKinley Henderson, The Gardener, Act 3, Scene 4. Stephen's been in the theater world for over 50 years. He's a teacher, he's been in movies, but he's mainly known as a stage actor. When I was young, I felt, what am I doing here at Juilliard? You know, studying the classics. Yeah. It's 1968, you know? Um, in 1968, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and it's the first time I saw the Klan in all their full regalia, mm. and they came on the campus of Kentucky State uh, College, a uh, historically black college, I had to make a choice about, was I going to be an artist or was I going to do something else? And luckily, I had a mentor, uh, Miriam Mamu Baraka, uh, Leroy Jones, who uh, said, you can do both. And he mm. said, you can, you can, you can go and you can train at Juilliard, but you can also, you know, be a part of what's going on in the street. That idea of combining civic activism and theater was embedded into the DNA of the public theater from the start. I found a recording of a talk that Esther Jackson gave in 1965 when she was running educational programs at the Shakespeare Festival. We are in a period of major social, political, and intellectual transition and there are throughout the society from top to bottom symptoms of very deep concern, not all positive. Unfortunately, and very sadly for me, when we look at those segments of the society which are attempting to deal with these problems in a constructive way, we do not see on the part of the theater at large a clear commitment. The theater, as theater that is, has remained aloof from the highly affecting issues of our time, from poverty, education, international cooperation, civil rights, and all of the elements which President Johnson calls the great society. I listened to Jackson with Oscar Eustace from the public. Wow, 
never got a chance to meet her. Jackson died in 2006 at age 83, but her words feel so timely right now. It is the theater, I think alone, more than religion, which is charged with the representation of the fundamental aspects of reality of the world in its own time. Indeed, it is the function of the theater to show us the human situation in our time, to help us objectify the complexity, to isolate those alternatives for action, and to show us those lines of action which men in our own age will call moral. Yeah, that is brilliant, and it's just, it's so beautifully put. 55 years later, everything she said about the theater could be true. Shakespeare was a life raft for me in in handling my emotions about all the stuff that's going on, about systemic racism, about living in a pandemic. John Douglas Thompson, Duke of York, Act Two, Scene One. John Douglas Thompson's been performing Shakespeare since he started acting. He's a regular on Broadway. The New York Times described him as one of the most compelling classical stage actors of his generation. Thompson's been acting for more than 20 years. He wasn't ready for this move off of the stage. Yeah, it was charged, but I was kind of charged with anger and rage and not knowing how doing a play, reading a play, because we weren't going to perform it, reading a play for radio would be at all satisfying. What would be the point of doing this? Want me to hit record now? or? And so what I wanted to do, certainly with this Richard II, was, speaking for me specifically, was then to use this Shakespeare, this play, and these words and these characters and these situations as a way to reinvest, to reinvest my humanity, because I was really feeling quite despondent about things. And I looked to see myself reflected back to me Mm. in his text, in his language, in all my emotions, happiness, sadness, rage, delusion, um, desperate, dissatisfaction, all those things I can find in his character. So that helps me center. So what was really interesting was people just bringing themselves to the work. And I always thought like that was the key to doing this Shakespeare, make it your own, and then it's really special. And that's something that uh, John encouraged me to just make sure that that I was using this language to speak for myself, to speak about my condition. And so how does that work for you as actors? Would you say, you know, did all of this change the way you thought about the substance of the actual play? I have an acronym for it, which is HOT, H-O-T, mm-hmm. Honest, Open, and Truthful. That's Miriam A. Hyman. I'm playing Bolingbrook. You'll hear more from her all week. I just feel like that is what comes through within the work. You know, I j- I'm just trying to be as connected to the material as possible. And with a writer like Shakespeare, you know, it's so rich and it's so honest. If you just communicate the truth of the text, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a line that uh, Mowbray has um, with Richard II where he says, My dear, dear Lord, the truest treasure mortal times afford is spotless reputation. Mine honor is my life. Both lie in one. Take honor from me and my life is done. When I heard that, the more I heard that line, I think that it spoke so true 
about the black and brown experience in this country. It's what we're fighting for, this honor, this spotless reputation that when people look at us, they don't look at us with stereotypes, but they look at us as human beings, as, as people with honor. The whole process was surprisingly emotional for John Douglas Thompson. We all seem to bring ourselves to it. I had never been in a Shakespeare play that was so dominated with black and brown voices. This is the first time. And you know, Sahim, the first black, brown director I've ever worked with in Shakespeare. Oh, really? Over my 20, 25 years of doing this kind of work, roughly. Um, So that was part of the joy of the whole uh, project was to see and hear all these black and brown voices. And oftentimes when I wasn't on or didn't have to record, I just listened to other people just to hear it, Mm -hmm. just to hear their life through these characters. Tomorrow night on Richard II. The banished Bolingbroke repeals himself and with uplifted arms is safe arrived at Ravenspur. And that is worse. The Lord Northumberland, his son, young Hotspur, with all their powerful friends are fled to him. This is Free Shakespeare on the Radio from WNYC in collaboration with the Public Theater. This production of Richard II was directed by Sahim Ali. You can download a copy of the script and see the production's full credits at wnyc.org slash Shakespeare. I'm Vincent Cunningham. Thank you for listening. And join us tomorrow night for episode two. 